Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. You've probably heard of the music contest Battle of the Bands. Two or more bands compete for the title of best band and the winners determined by the loudest cheering from the audience. Well, there was a time in the history of opera about 200 years ago when two tenors would duel on stage for the hearts of the music lovers. And now, two celebrated tenors of our age have revived that tradition with a new recording, Amici e Rivali, Friends and Rivals. Later this hour, the acclaimed opera singers Lawrence Brownlee and Michael Spires explain their friendly rivalry and demonstrate with some dazzling sounds. First, more recent music, now in storybook form. Carla Redding Andrews is the executive director of the Otis Redding Foundation. We last spoke in September after the release of Respect, the children's book based on the lyrics to Otis Redding's famous song. Now there's a new book in the series, The Dock of the Bay. Carla Redding Andrews joins us via Zoom with Caitlin Shea O'Connor, the illustrator of the book. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. It is an honor to be here today. Thrilled to have you. Now, Carla, when you told us this children's book would be out in February, I could not wait to read the story and talk with you again. The Dock of the Bay is set to another of your father's greatest hits. How does the story unfold in this book? Well, it's amazing. The illustrations uh, with the the little cat just really kind of reflecting, you know, he'll be sitting to the evening come waiting to catch his dinner, I assume, a, a fish. And he's sitting in the morning sun and he'll be sitting there till the evening comes, which uh, is amazing. The the um, excitement it brings to the eyes of kids as they see the this little cat as his journey travels through uh, sitting on the dock of the bay. That little cat traveled 2,000 miles from home. <laughs> yes, he did. 2,000 miles he roamed from home uh, just to make the dock his home, he says. Oh, Caitlin, you are from Atlanta. I am. Yes, I've been um, living in Atlanta pretty much all my life. <laughs> well, please tell us how you conceived these wonderful illustrations for Dock of the Bay. Uh, well, obviously, I had wonderful inspiration, which was the song itself, um, which was already such a great starting point for me. Um, So the publisher reached out and really the only requirement was to include the lyrics. Beyond that, total free reign to just create whatever story you want. So that was a little bit overwhelming, but it was mostly just exciting. Um, (sighs) But I just wanted to obviously try and honor the song. It's such a classic. I grew up with it. It has that nostalgia for me, but I wanted to 
really sit down and listen to the lyrics and try and understand the feeling and the meaning and relate that for kids. So in order to make that relatable, like kind of came up with this story about this little cat who is just trying to catch his dinner and just can't catch a break, but finally has a friend to show some kindness at the very end of the book. Because interestingly enough, I feel like the lyrics, you know, growing up with it, everyone kind of has warm, fuzzy, happy feelings with it. But when I really listened to it, there's a bit of, you know, melancholy to it. So I wanted the story to have that bit of an arc where there was kind of a struggle. So that sort of just helped. The song really informed the story so much. Oh, yes. Well, Otis Redding's song and the lyrics he co-wrote with guitarist Steve Cropper Mm -hmm. tell the story of a lonely man. Mm -hmm. It's sorrowful. I left my home in Georgia Headed for the Frisco Bay I've had nothing to live for It looked like nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just gonna sit on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Sitting on a darker bay, wasting time. How do you make this sad tale into something hopeful for children? Well, I feel like the beauty of the song is that it, it kind of is a sandwich. It, it sort of obviously repeats itself at the end. It starts with, you know, sitting on sitting in the morning sun, but sitting till the evening comes and it ends with that too. So that sort of helps you start with the beginning, a middle and an end. So it's going to end in a positive note. But yeah, it's like, you don't wanna, you don't wanna make this the saddest story ever, but I also know that children are so intuitive. So whether they're listening to this song or they're listening to a conversation where maybe they don't understand every single word, I feel like they understand the feeling. So I think they could, latch on to that feeling of loneliness or sadness. But of course, yeah, I wanted it to resolve. And I wanted it to resolve with the help of a friend, too. Yes. And Carla, I was fascinated to learn that your dad really was inspired by his setting. After his famous performance at the Monterey Pop Festival, he spent time in... Sausalito, California. Can you tell us more of the backstory? So yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting. And and once I learned uh, exactly how Dad came up with this song, um, you know, my mother told me that he was just wanting to have a place of of melancholy and water, and it just really a feel good environment to to be different. He wanted to write something different is what what he told my mom. So being there in Sausalito and the inspiration of the the bay and the water, which my my father loved water and loved to swim. I think, you know, that's how this whole thing came about. And he was looking for a song that wasn't necessarily about his normal lyrics, uh, the the begging and the pleading and the man and the woman and the love. But this was more of a of a journey of, of himself, of, of a person just trying to to do what people tell them to do, but not able to do what people tell them to do. And so the dock of the bay, sometimes for us it's sad, but then on the other side it's a it's a happy kind of thought that he knew he wanted to change course in his songwriting. And certainly beginning the song uh, in Sausalito certainly made this song very different from anything that he had ever written. Amazing. And is it true that the whistling we hear before the fade out was not a part of his original plan? It was not a part of his original plans. You know, there there are versions with with seagulls in the background, uh, birds kind of chirping in the background, and then uh, the ending part, which Dad never really got to hear the complete song finished. Uh, the whistling came in, and I think it's it's just perfect. The story goes that in the recording session he 
hadn't written the remainder of the lyrics or he forgot the lyrics. They were so fresh. And so he just whistled and the rest is history. Yeah, well, he I think he was trying to, according to mom and, and Steve, you know, the trying to really cross mingle the lyrics and wasn't quite sure where to put each each hook. And so the whistling came in. And I, I, I just think it's such a real, real meaningful, powerful part of the song. Oh, it is brilliant. Caitlin, I read that in addition to being a cat and dog lover, you are also a whistler. Were you a whistler before you took on this project? Oh my God, I don't know where you read that or where I said that, but yes. Uh, can you give us a little rendition? Of course, only approximating what the great artist Redding could do, but can we hear a bit? Oh my gosh, wow. Um, sure, I can try, but now I'm smiling, so it's hard, but... Um... Oh my. You guys I am impressed. I'm whistle command. <laughs> that was beautiful, really. Bravo. Bravo. In in the previous book set to Otis Redding's song Respect. The illustrations show empowerment to young children of color. We see astronauts and doctors and firefighters. Is there a direct message to black and brown children in the dock of the bay? I think, you know, kids today are, are, are just kind of over figuring on color so much. And people are people. And I think this little girl and this little cat in this book, they could have been any color, brown, pink, whatever. And I think kids will not even know about that it's a little black girl or a little brown girl. I think they'll think they'll read these lyrics and kind of place themselves inside the story so that it becomes just a diverse story for anyone, what, no matter the color, no matter the animal. I think it really inspiration to all kids. Oh, yes. And the important part of this story is the little cat found a friend. Yes, that's right. Who likes to fish. <laughs> that's right. So he has this food supply guaranteed. And that's what friends are for. That's what friends are for, you know? If you can find a friend who can feed you, that's the best. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> the best. While you, while you sit on the dock of the bay. <laughs> <laughs> Nurturing and sustenance. Carla, this song was recorded two weeks before your father died in that horrible plane crash at age 26. Yes. He left this amazing musical legacy at such a young age. How does the Otis Redding Foundation extend your father's beliefs and values? Well, he, you know, he was an advocate proponent of music and arts education. He and my, my mom both were such advocates of that. And through the foundation we established in his honor, he was already preparing summer camps for kids uh, at our ranch uh, outside of Macon, Georgia, in Round Oak, Georgia. And so what we do now uh, really continues the voice that he had already put in place in 1966. And we just continue to do what we know he would be doing right now. You know, we in, we've inspired thousands of kids to not everyone can be the, the singer, not everyone can be the superstar, but there are so many element, elements of the entertainment industry that you can be a part of. And it's just self-motivation and self-respect for yourself. That's what the foundation does is just empower kids to do their best, whatever they decide to do, while having a little bit of fun and self-expression while doing that. 
as if he weren't just a brilliant enough musician and performer. On top of that, he showed such deep humanity. What a privilege this is to talk with you. And I adore this book. Carla Redding Andrews, Caitlin Shea O'Connor, thank you very much. Oh, well, thank you for having us. And I'm just so honored to be on with Caitlin um, and, and just really think she did an amazing illustration with the book because it's, uh, we, it's fabulous. And as a matter of fact, we'll be distributing it into every third grader in our community, just as we did with the Respect book. So we want every kid to have a copy in this community. Wow. May I ask where your community is, Carla? Are you in California? No, no, no. no. We're in Macon, Georgia, which is still, even, even if my dad were alive, we'd still be in Macon, Georgia. We may have a place in California, but he loved Macon. And oh. this community was still, they embrace us as if dad is still walking the, the streets today. And I know he's, he's very proud of his community and would be right here if he were alive. 2,000 miles I roam Just to make this dock my home Now I'm just gonna sit at the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Ooh, Sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Carla Redding Andrews is the daughter of Otis Redding and executive director of the Otis Redding Foundation. She was joined by Atlanta artist Caitlin Shea O'Connor, the illustrator of the new children's book, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. When Sybil Richardson was incarcerated, she prayed that after her release, God would enable her to use her voice for the voiceless. Sybil Richardson's story is told now in a stunning documentary by Garrett Bradley. The director and Ms. Richardson, who goes by Fox Rich, and her husband, Robert Rich, are with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Oh, thank you, Louis. Thank you for having us. Yes, indeed. Well, the movie was so marvelous, and it's so emotional going through it. I, I, I felt like I, I was watching a suspense movie in some ways. <laughs> I'm eager to know how the film came about. Garrett, how did you and Fox meet? I had been making a film called Alone, which was a short 13-minute op-doc. And I had initially kind of conceived of that film as being a series of intergenerational conversations with uh, specifically women who were in incarcerated families. And I had contacted an organization called Flick, Friends and Families of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children. And Gina Womack, who is the um, co-founder and director of that organization, picked up. And she said, the first person you have to speak with is Fox Rich. And Fox was incredibly kind in inviting us to their home. And she very briefly is in alone and makes a really vivid 
connection between slavery and the prison industrial complex. And Fox certainly can speak to it in her own experience as well, but it really became sort of a joining of our efforts. I had been trying to think about how could the conversation around incarceration from a familial standpoint be continued. And I felt it was really important to to try to think about how uh, I could make sort of a sister film to Alone, you know, that would that would, again, sort of extend that conversation in a unique way, in a way that was unique uh, completely to Fox uh, and Robert and to the Richardson family's story. Well, it is astonishing from the standpoint of family stability and love, which never ends and comes through it in every frame. We should let our listeners know Rob was incarcerated with an absolutely mind-boggling 60-year sentence for an armed robbery in which no one was hurt. Fox had a 12-year sentence because she entered a plea bargain. You talk about the prison industrial complex, Garrett. The title of the movie, Time, is something I was hoping all three of you could talk about because it takes place over the course of 20 years. And yet, what must that have seemed like for all of you? Um, When I uh, had an opportunity to be with Garrett for Alone, the project Alone, uh, it was during the time when I had been watching 12 Years a Slave and the scene where he is um, tapping his feet in the mud and, and hanging on for dear life from the tree so resonated to me what I was experiencing with incarceration. And at that time, I, I came to the realization that they are still lynching us just instead of doing it with trees, they're doing it with time. And, and I shared that thought um, as it had unfolded in alone. And, and so being able to have planted the, the seed of time, what time looks like, what time does, and then to have a, an artist like Garrett manifest time in the form of time, the movie. Hmm, what else can I say? <laughs> you said a lot. In fact, in the movie, your, your mother, Fox, is depicted with her comments on the sentence and the ridiculousness of it being akin to slavery. What does it take to break down this injustice? Love, Lois. Love is the most divine chemical in the universe, and it dissolves everything that is not of itself. When we love each other and love all of humanity equally, then we treat it a certain kind of way. And when love is present, all of the hate and harm that is being caused, it just, it wouldn't exist. The only way that Rob and I could make it through the pits of hell and our family in one piece was through the power of love. It heals, it it helps, it restores. And um, it's just everything that I've, I've been able to find the best thing in life. And I think that if our lawmakers and our leadership had uh, a love for justice, um, I truly believe that uh, we could easily uh, fix a lot of what's wrong simply by taking away the uh, the power that allows us to do it in our uh, constitutions, both to the uh, United States as well as to our individual states. There's a clause in all of those constitutions that allow for slavery when someone commits an offense. So if we are no longer a slave state or a slave country, then all, that we ha- all we have to do is simply take it out of our constitution. There's other ways to punish people. Garrett, why did you choose to shoot the movie in black and white? Yeah, so the choice of black and white was really an extension of thinking about some of the aesthetic choices working through the archive, which is in beautiful color and different variations of color and has a very different type of materiality. And, um, you know, we did play around for a moment of it being color, but ultimately I felt it was really important that there was a sort of linearity, a certain type of uh, visual um, fluidity that would also then allow us to bounce around in time without necessarily feeling uh, time in texture, you know? I think it kind of creates a type of uniformity. 
Yeah, it, it, it is not linear or chronological, which made me wonder, did you, Fox, save all of that archival footage? You and Rob had had all of those videos from early on? <laughs> yes, <laughs> and so much more. As a matter of fact, uh, one of my sons was asking this morning, how did uh, their dad and I communicate when I was in prison and he was in prison? And I said, you know, we wrote letters for, you know, the, that two and a half year time frame. And um, he was like, and what happened to those letters? You still have them? And I'm like, yes, I still have every <laughs> last letter. So, yes, yeah. so we got quite a bit of an archive. Now, can we talk about the scenes with justice and freedom with your sons, Fox and Rob, both as children? And <laughs> could they be more adorable? Oh, my goodness. Right. And they are still so adorable. They, you know, I think Rob and I really gave birth to ourselves with the energy that those two have since they were born. They just can't stay away from each other. They are total opposites that are close as they can be. So much like us. Well, the names you chose certainly are appropriate for what you wish for them in life. And I was particularly captivated by your son's role in student government. Would you talk about that scene on the debate team he was participating in? Yes, yes. Freedom and Justice worked two years, their ninth and tenth grade year with me helping with the car dealership. And then they got tested out of high school and started at Tulane. And then Freedom was able to secure a um, merit scholarship over at Loyola as soon as he got there. I mean, he's uh, actually his first office that Freedom <laughs> ran for. Maybe I could tell him. The very first office Freedom ran for was when he was five years old. Strangely enough, it was a um, it was the kitty corner, which is a uh, which was one of my jobs that I was tasked with doing uh, in the prison, where I would basically be responsible for entertaining the children that were visiting loved ones at the prison. So uh, we had to issue out coloring books and all types of toys to kind of keep kids busy and you know kind of keep them going. Uh, Freedom saw a need to be able to um, organize the kitty corner in <laughs> such a way that he felt that it needed a president. Uh, he felt that it, <laughs> it needed several other things, a sergeant in arms and so forth. So at any rate, he, uh, he staged an election among all of the kids that were visiting that day in the prison. And uh, they all voted him in to uh, be president of the kitty corner. Hence, uh, his first, uh, his first his post. First, first elected office. <laughs> what actually led to your parole, finally, to a reduction in your sentence. No reduction in sentence, Ms. Lloyds. We are still a slave to the state of Louisiana. They did, oh, really? They did not commute his sentence. They just uh, accelerated his release. And so Robert still has 40 years on parole. So the fight continues. So the fight continues. That'll be <laughs> Garrett Bradley's Times 2 documentary. <laughs> When we get back this voice from parole, now he's really free-free. Then he's going to be free-free. <laughs> free indeed. Rob and Fox Rich, subjects of the documentary Time. They were joined by filmmaker and director Garrett Bradley. The movie Time is available to stream on Amazon Prime. You've probably heard of a music contest called Battle of the Bands. Two or more bands compete for the title of Best Band, and the winner is determined by the loudest cheering from the audience. Well, there was a time in the history of opera, about 200 years ago, when two tenors would duel on stage for the hearts of the musicgoers. Now, two celebrated tenors of our age have revived that tradition with a new recording called Amici e Rivali, Friends and Rivals. Joining us via Zoom are Larry Brownlee and Michael Spires. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's nice to be with you. Thank you so much. 
Well, first, please tell us how the album came about. The album came about as a result of a concert that Michael and I did at the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, we performed together, and part of any duet recital or concert, you have duets that you uh, put as in the program. So Michael and I, we decided we would uh, do Rossini duets since both of us have made our careers singing a fair amount of Rossini. Um, the audience was so enthusiastic. Michael and I had such a wonderful time, and it was just a wonderful experience uh, that we thought, uh, based on that response, and actually someone in the audience recorded the, the encore and put it on YouTube, and it went viral, that we thought we have something we have something here and we should build upon that concert. So we decided that we would do this album uh, of duets and trios of Rossini and never before had an album like this been done. So that's how the album came to be. Mm. Now, all of the music on this album was written by the ingenious opera composer Giacchino Rossini in a relatively small time period. He lived a long life and all of the music on your recording was written between 1815 and 1826. How do you recreate the dueling tenors of Rossini's time with this recording? So it, at this time, uh, Rossini was writing uh, not only for two battling tenors, that uh, oftentimes there were about four different operas that he wrote for six tenors to be on stage at the same time, which is, as you can imagine, um, a little too many tenors. Uh, <laughs> um, but the interesting thing about the, the two major stars of this time were Andre Nozzari and Giovanni David. What we wanted to really highlight was this this incredible um, right, vocal writing for these these two superstars of the time in the early 1800s, because in Napoli, during the first uh, two decades of, of the 1800s, the greatest singers in the world were at Rossini's disposal. And he decided to do something that had never been done, which was um, which was exploit these two different types of tenors. It's, it's so interesting, I think, for people to hear that we are both tenors, um, we have different timbres, but we can also sing the same kind of repertoire. And that's specifically why we chose this music, because it fits our voices. I, I really believe that uh, people will find, find this album enlightening in the fact that we are both tenors and we sing the same repertoire, but we approach it in different ways and our natural voices are different. So uh, it's, it's a fun way to explore the, the, the tenor voice. The first duet on the album is from Rossini's most famous opera, The Barber of Seville. How does this duet illustrate the contrast in your voices? The first piece, The Barber of Seville duet, I think it shows real differences in our voices. Of course, uh, Michael started as a baritone, so he has that baritonal sound. It's thicker, it's lower sitting. Even when Michael wakes up in the morning, he sounds like a bass. So he has a lower sitting voice. That, uh, he has a lower sitting voice, and my voice has always been high. It's been one that sits. Uh, I'm more comfortable with a tessitura. That means a, a range in the vocal stratosphere that sits a bit higher. I have a higher sitting voice. And so the role of Alma Viva has been a very important role for me, but one that seems to fit uh, very naturally for my voice. Uh, maybe I have a voice that's similar to Garcia in some ways, but uh, I think you can tell in the qualities of his lower sitting voice and my higher sitting voice how they are so different. You know, Michael has a, a thicker sound and I have what people call as a lighter sound. Yeah. 
It shows off who we are because people are are then a bit confused to say, is there a baritone and a tenor? No, it's just two tenors with the uniquely different voices. It is very dramatic in how obvious it is. I mean, it's just a wonderful illustration of how two singers categorized as tenors can have such different and beautiful vocal qualities. Rossini wrote in the style of an Italian vocal technique known as bel canto, which emphasizes the beauty of sound and sparkling performance. Both of you are experts in that style. What has been the impact of your bel canto specialty on each of your careers? Well, I'll I'll go first. Uh, um, I don't think that I would have a career without bel canto, to be totally honest. <laughs> and more specifically, Rossini is the driving factor uh, and has been for for my entire career for the last twenty years. Um, all of my major debuts in in major houses around the world, in La Scala and Covent Garden, have have all been with Rossini pieces. And um, bel canto was really the way in which I was able to learn how to sing as a tenor and how to, to become a much better musician and artist in, in terms of what the voice can do as an instrument to reach people and, and touch them in a way. You know, it's interesting. When people think about bel canto, of course, everybody knows that it translates as beautiful singing. But more than anything, I think, as Michael was alluding to, it shows off the bells and whistles of a voice, what a voice is, is capable of doing. I think the most important quality of that is expressivity. Uh, sometimes they're high-lying phrases that really demand elegance and mastery of the voice and the instruments and expressivity and really bringing out the words and using the coloratura to say something, not just for the sake of moving your voice really fast, but being an expressive artist. And so, of course, bel canto has been very, very important for me. It's been the vehicle for all of my important debuts. And someone told me a long time ago that you have to sing from the heart. And in the realm of bel canto, you can really use that to be an expressive person, to say something. Another example of dazzling bel canto on this album is the portion you sing from Act Two of Rossini's opera Otello, Che Fiero Punto. haven't performed the whole opera of Rossini's Otello. It's one that Michael and I have been discussing for some while that we would like to put on stage. But the interesting thing, uh, people who know me, they know that I am African-American and Michael is Caucasian-American and the role that he should sing based upon what Rossini wrote should be opposite. Michael should sing the role of Otello and the role of Rodrigo works for me. I've actually had a contract to do it before, uh, but a stage director, he said that it didn't work because I was a black man and I needed to be 
uh, a European Caucasian person uh, of European Caucasian descent to be able to sing the role of Rodrigo. So at some point, hopefully I'll get a chance to know uh, where that comes in the opera. An African-American singer performed Otello at La Scala. <laughs> yeah, Russell Thomas. He's a friend of mine, actually, a very good friend of mine. He's yeah, as, as well as mine. He was my roommate in St. Louis at, oh, at Opera Theater St. Louis. Okay, <laughs> Russell was not only a fantastic interview, but as everyone knows, he's a glorious singer. And it was around the time he came to our studios that I think Peter Gelb had announced that he would only have an African-American singer cast in the role of Otello from that point on. And Russell Thomas took issue with it. And he said, well, if we're going to go there, I hope that doesn't mean that I can never play Pinkerton, because that's one of my favorite roles. And I thought, oh, my God, where, where are we? And what does, what does this all mean? Because Russell pointed out that he didn't think that a white singer wearing makeup was offensive. He thought it was a visual cue. How do you weigh in on this? When we're trying to be respectful but not reach the point of depriving singers of roles, where do we go? You know, Russell and I, we've had this discussion. Actually, Russell, Thomas, Morris Robinson, myself, uh, some other singers, we talk actually amongst ourselves quite often. And I have a similar view. You know, we cannot take away the historical content or context of what we do in opera. I would like to think me singing a lot of roles in Rossini, and there are a few roles that I, I guess, quote unquote, can't sing because I'm a man of color. But I would like to think that if times were different or if these composers were living in uh, today, that they would want to use Russell Thomas's voice regardless of the character. They would want to use Morris Robinson's voice regardless of the character. I think uh, that we as African-American singers we just want equity. We want not to be forbidden for singing certain things. And the main thing about all of that is the voice is the thing sh that should lead. So if Russell has the voice to sing Pinkerton, regardless of the fact he's uh, black, he should sing it. If he has the voice to sing Otello, regardless of his color, he should sing it because the voice decides. If my voice is meant for Rodrigo, fine. If you think about the most common example, how many people really look like a 15 or 16 year old Asian uh, woman singing Madame Butterfly? Few do. <laughs> Few do, but it's acceptable for them because it should be the voice that decides. So I agree. If somebody puts on, you know, um, makeup to have, you know, historical relevance to what uh, Shakespeare wrote, fine. Uh, because if the voice is leading, I think that that is going to give you a much more important interpretation of the role, singing, acting, or whatever. But I think it should be secondary to the voice. So I'm absolutely in agreement to Russell said, I don't think your color should have anything to do with it. But we also want to make sure that our color isn't keeping us from doing things because of underlying issues like racism or discrimination or bias. Oh, that's so well put, Larry. When I spoke with Morris Robinson last, actually it was just before the pandemic hit because he was playing Porky in the Atlanta Opera production. And it was a good 16 years, maybe closer to 20, before he would even consider playing Porky, he said. Of course, he didn't want to be typecast, but when La Scala comes knocking on the door, you don't turn down a role, do you? <laughs> you don't. And Morris Robinson and I, I don't know if you know this, but Morris and I are pretty much like brothers. Morris is my son's godfather, and, uh, and he's my son's godfather, and I'm his son's godfather slash uncle, but we are really like, really like brothers, and we speak pretty much every single day, uh, either by phone or text. And we, we talk about many issues. We talked about the Porgy and Bess, you know, a lot of artistic choices that we have. 
we kind of run it by each other because we respect each other. Morris and I met 20 years ago at Upper Theater St. Louis in 2020, and we hit it off immediately. We were fast friends, and we've had a relationship that has uh, really blossomed into something that is beyond friendship, but really uh, one of my closest confidants and friends. But, you know, our discussions about subjects like this him taking Porgy or me not singing Sport in Life because potentially being typecast or what have you. It is a very real thing because the discussion has been so much lately about the people that are hiring singers. And so if people who are hiring, if they only have in their head a certain vision of what they think a prince, a king, an emperor is, then I think you're going to see the same things. And so they'll say, oh, well, this guy looks like a porgy to me. Why? Because he's black. Then he'll only hire that person because he thinks that that person should be singing porgy in that only. So we have to be smart in what we take. But hopefully the tide is shifting and hopefully things are turning that people begin to see us. It's already it's, it's happening, but people will continue to see us as important people that can be, you know, be a Romphis and can be the Inquisitor and it can be the Taminos and the Pinkertons and everything else. If we take the color out of the equation and really let the voice and the communicative artist be the lead and everything, I think we'll be in a much better place and then we won't have to have this discussion, this discussion about race anymore. You, you hear how eloquent and detailed and, and subtle uh, the argument is and everything that Larry says, I, I completely agree with. And this is something that we need to keep in mind as a community in the opera world. Going back to friends and rivals, some of the pairs of tenor characters on this recording are friends, others are rivals. Which duets stand out most, the best of friends and the strongest rivals in each category? If you could choose one in each category, which would you pick? Go ahead, Michael. Okay. Well, I would say that... uh, for me, the, the, the best friends are Figaro and uh, Alma Viva. And it's this playfulness and this understanding, you know, and, and, and to be honest, it's kind of character wise, uh, it's a little bit typecasting because I'm kind of a country bumpkin and, uh, but I like to do scheming things. And, and Larry's, Larry's very, uh, very astute and, and scholarly and he knows, he knows, but he also knows how to, how to do some scheming. And so they are really good friends together. And I, I find that to be the best friendship on the piece. And definitely for me, the strongest uh, rival is the, the Otello rival because you have so many complexities within the, the characters and, and you just have these crazy fireworks where, it's basically anything you can do, I can do better, that kind of a situation. <laughs> I agree. You know, Barbara Seville is one. It's interesting how you have the Count who's a person of royalty, but you also have Figaro. And you see how even in society, how people who have a certain gift or talent can somehow raise their themselves or their situation in society, that they are useful to people beyond their station, if you want to call it. And how because of Figaro's craftiness and wittiness that he is considered somewhat of an equal. Uh, I've always tried to play the count. It's not this one who's so removed from the reality of societies. You know, if you think about royalty, they don't really mingle with the common class. But I've always thought of these two young guys who are out there in their own rights, just trying to live and get what they want out of life and how uh, I can respect Figaro because he has accomplished so much in life. And he's the guy, he's the guy that can get you stuff. And so at any level, we always have a guy that you can get, you that can get you the stuff. And that's who Figaro is for me. I, I think it's interesting that we have that element of rivalry. But when you think of rivalry also, what we wanted to do in the disc is to show that uh, one-upsmanship, you know, uh, if you're going to hold this high note, I'm going to hold one just as long, or I'm going to add a high D, and Michael's going to add a low A flat or something, but it's a friendly rivalry that we also try to highlight in this recording, and recording for us was so much fun uh, amongst ourselves and the whole team that was there. It just was a great sense of chemistry, working together, but also friendly rivalry, so that's also a big element of the album. Okay, the money, 
And what comes through most is that you are friends and not rivals. Larry Brownlee, <laughs> Michael Spires, this has been a joy. Thank you so very much. Oh, Thank you so time. much, Lois. Thank you. Tenors Larry Brownlee and Michael Spires. Their new album, Amici e Rivali, also known as Friends and Rivals, is available now. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., we'll learn about three billion the new exhibition at the Hudgens Center, featuring artworks celebrating nature and delving into the plight of birds. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash citylights. Have a safe and good weekend. And thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.